The following audio is from a sermon series entitled Hard to Believe, Answering Common Objections to Christianity. For more information about Sacred City Church, please visit sacredcitychurch.com. Hear the word of the Lord from 1 John 4, 1 through 12. Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God. For many false prophets have gone out into the world. By this, you know the spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. And every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from, is not from God. This is the spirit of the Antichrist, which you heard was coming and now is in the world already. Little children, you are from God and have overcome them. For he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. They are from the world. Therefore, they speak from the world and the world listens to them. We are from God. Whoever knows God listens to us. Whoever is not from God does not listen to us. By this, we know the spirit of truth and the spirit of error. Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God, and whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God, because God is love. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent his only son into the world, so that we might live through him. In this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, is if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God. If we love one another, God abides in us and his love is perfected in us. This is the word of the Lord. We are two weeks into a six-week series here called Hard to Believe. Each week, we are taking a look at one of the strongest objections that our culture has to Christianity, and we're attempting to answer it to the best of our abilities. And last week, we answered the questions, has science disproven Christianity, and and, or is science and Christianity at war with one another? Um, If you missed that, you can find the video on Facebook, and you can find the podcast on our website. Uh, This week, we are going to be answering the question, how can there be only one way to God? This is really the question of exclusivity. Isn't Christianity, in all religions actually, or most religions, exclusive? Don't they claim to be the only way to know God? And therefore, doesn't that create a lot of problems in our world? It would be difficult to get through college without at least one professor saying something like this. Religion is bad because it's exclusive. When one group claims to have the truth, it leads to pride and pride leads to separation. If I think that I have the truth, the only truth, and the one way to know God, that can lead me or it does lead me to begin to look down on those who do not have the truth. Many would say, this is the reason we have such a divided country. It's the reason for many wars and many atrocities around the world. When I think that I am right and everyone else is wrong, it becomes easier for me to oppress people. So when Christianity and Jesus himself claims to be the way, the way, the truth, and the life, We push back on that. 
that seems to be really narrow-minded and exclusive. How arrogant it is to say that you have the only way to God. And every other world, every other religion in the world is wrong. How arrogant. In a pluralist society in which we live, any confident statement of ultimate belief, any claim to announce the truth about God and his purpose for the world is liable to be dismissed as ignorant, arrogant, or dogmatic. And one of the most prominent responses to the exclusivity of religion has been what is called religious pluralism. Now that combination of words can mean a couple of different things, but I'm going to talk about it today in its most popular manifestation in our culture. Um, This might be the most foundational belief concerning religion in our society today. It is prevalent in our educational systems, in all of our entertainment, in all of our social media, and it's underlying most of the reporting in our news organizations. It is actually pretty difficult to go a day without hearing this belief and this view represented in some form. And the popular form of religious pluralism says this, all religions are equally valid paths to God. And to claim otherwise is arrogant and possibly bigoted. Okay, all religions, here's the claim, all religions are equally valid paths to God. And to claim otherwise is arrogant or possibly bigoted. And this is often um, illustrated um, by telling a story or a parable that goes something like this. Four blind men approach an elephant, having never before encountered one. One approaches from the front and grabs its trunk. When asked what the elephant is like, he says, an elephant is like a large snake. Another blind man approaches from the side and feels the elephant's side and says, no, no, you're wrong. An elephant is like a large wall. The third man approaches from behind and grabs the elephant's tail and says, I don't know what you're talking about. You're both wrong. It's like a small snake. An elephant feels like a small snake. The fourth blind man approaches the elephant and grabs one of its legs and says, you are all wrong. An elephant is like a tree. Now, in some versions of the story, these men eventually comes to, come to blows with one another, right? Eventually, they're going to call each other idiots, right? You guys are idiots. You're, you're, you don't know what you're talking about. I, I, I'm seeing this thing clearly, or I'm, I'm feeling this thing clearly in front of me, and I know what it's like. And this story, see, it, it, it's, it's centuries old. It, it originated in ancient India, and it was a way to teach the truths of religious pluralism. But the moral of the story is that everyone was both right and wrong. Their personal truth was only a piece of the puzzle. They were all equally right and they were all equally wrong. It is then said that all the world religions are the same. Each one has a piece of the truth, but they're all actually describing the same God. But here's the problem with this story. It's told from the point of view of a person who sees all the truth. There is someone here who knows that this is indeed an elephant and what an elephant actually looks like. 
It is not a snake or a wall or a tree. There is someone who is claiming to know that indeed this is an elephant and they aren't blind. And in fact, they have a good perspective on the whole situation. Leslie Newbigin pointed this out in his book, The Gospel in a Pluralist Society. He says this, the only way you could possibly know that every religion only sees part of the truth is if you assume you see all the truth. The only way you could know that all religions only see part of the truth is if you assume you have the whole truth, which is the very thing you say that nobody has. Now, it's critical that you see what's going on here. Many people, maybe even most people in our society today that believe that exclusivity is a vice. It's a sin. It's something that should be avoided. Alvin Plantinga says this, many in our culture believe that exclusivism is irrational, egotistical, and unjustified or intellectually arrogant and elitist, a manifestation of harmful pride or even oppressive imperialist and or imperialist. But the answer, listen, the answer to exclusive being trying these, all these exclusive claims of religion cannot be religious pluralism. The answer cannot be all religions and all paths will eventually lead to God because that itself is an exclusive claim. You are claiming that all religions aren't seeing things fully, but you are. Do you see the problem there? Tim Keller in his book, The Reason for God, says this. It is no more narrow to claim that one religion is right than it is to say that one way to think about all religions, namely if they're all equal, is right. He says this, we are all exclusive in our beliefs about religion, but in different ways. So I want us to see that this morning, that religious pluralism, the idea that all paths are equal and all are valid paths to God, is itself exclusive. Now listen, it sounds inviting. You believe what you want to believe. I believe what we want to believe. It'll all work out in the end. It sounds humble and tolerant and welcoming But once you get inside this view, you realize that it's no different than religion. It is making a truth claim that cannot be proven. All religions are equal. Prove that. You can't prove that. And the only way you could say that is by making a universal truth claim about all religions, that you claim to see all religions. And this is is what's fascinating. When with religious pluralism, when you say that all religions are equal, one of the things that happens is then the people that believe that begin to look down on those who don't believe like they do. So how do we move forward? The answer cannot be everything is just the same and everything is equal. All religions are equal. All gods are the same. All paths to God. It can't be that. So how do we move forward Everybody's making exclusive claims. How do we move forward? Well, I think in our text this morning, in the scriptures, we see a good way forward. Um, this is 1 John chapter 4. If you want to open it, please do open up your Bibles and you're going to follow along with me this morning. And he, we, here we hear the apostle John, had, he has some good advice for us. And it's interesting. I'm going to say this. The Bible and Christianity doesn't just say, here's the truth, believe it. Okay, 
it gives good rational arguments for believing that the truths of Christianity are the truth, okay? It doesn't say, I'm going to say this, Christianity does not say, shut off your mind, just believe it. Christianity is not a leap into the dark, okay? It's going to give rational reasons. I want you to see this. Uh, chapter 4, verses 1 uh, and 2. Beloved, do not believe every spirit. Now listen, when we read that word spirit, we immediately think that he's talking about demons and, and in the spiritual world. And there's, he's going to talk, talk, there's going to be some stuff behind that. Um, there's going to be some uh, spiritual influences behind that. But what he's talking here, he's confronting other religions. He's confronting other religious teachers. So when he's saying, don't believe every spirit, he's basically saying this, don't believe every teaching you hear about God. Don't believe every... Everyone that's claiming universal truth, claiming to know a way to God, don't believe them all. Okay, so right there, John is showing it's going to take some rationality here to believe in Christianity. We're going to compare some things of other religions. It's not just dismiss them all and believe Christianity. Let's compare some things. Look, look what he says. But test the spirits. Another thing to say is test other religions. Put, put them to the test. Let's see if they're valid. Let's see if they're real. Whether, whether they are from God. For many false prophets, that's just false teachers, many people teaching different religious views, have gone out into the world. But, all right, I'm not going to go to verse two. I'm just going to just, we're going to say verse one right there. Here's what he's saying. Don't believe everything you hear. Don't believe every religious teaching. Every path can't, can't lead to God. Okay, but here's the second one. Test the spirits. Test the religions. Test their beliefs. Put them to the test. And John here gives us at least a twofold test for us to use when testing religions, okay? And I think we're going to agree with the one I'm going to kind of jump off with this morning. We're going to look at the second one first. Go to, go to verse 7. Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God, and whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God because God is love. Here is the first test. John is saying that one of the best ways, maybe the primary way to determine if a religion is good and valid is how well it promotes love and how well it creates people who love others. If it doesn't make people more loving, then it is a faulty religion. It's not talking about God. God is love, John says. Now, I'm not saying this is the only test. It's not the only test. All religions, you can test religions in all kinds of different ways. All religions make some kind of claim about the universe, sometimes a claim, historical claims. You can evaluate these claims and make judgments whether one religion might be true or not. But that's not what I want to do this morning. Here, the Apostle John tells us this is the measuring stick we should use when evaluating the world's religions. How much love do they promote? Can they, I'm going to say this, can they create loving people and then send them out into the world as lovers of God and lovers of people? I think most of us this morning, 
would agree that's a good way to uh, measure religion, right? How well do they love others? How, how loving, of a, if God is love, then his people should be lovers. How loving are they? I think most of us, even if you're not a Christian, even if you're not a believer in this, in this room, you might say, I, I think religion should promote love, right? I, I think that's something that it should do, right? The Bible, the apostle John says exactly that's what it should do. It should promote love. Now, Here's what I would like to apply this test. I want to apply this test to two common religious views in our society today. The first is going to be called conservative religion. It could be called moralism. The basic premise of this view is that if you know the truth, and I'm going to say this, and sometimes religious conservatism, I'm going to say this, sometimes it goes under the disguise as Christianity. So, so you might think, when you hear Christianity, you might think, you know, what I'm actually talking about is religious conservatism. It's moralism, okay? Sometimes the Christianity in our culture hides itself and sneaks itself into our worldview, but in reality, it's undercover, right? In reality, it's moralism, okay? Now, let me, let me get into this. Here, here's what it is. The basic premise of this view is, if you know the truth and do good, God will love you. Okay, here's the premise. Know the truth. You can even say no God, or you could even, if this is sneaking in, you could say no Jesus, do good, and God will love you. This is traditional religion. Now, here, here's some problems. Traditional religion, and this kind of idea of moralism, one of the things it does is it's got, it's got the same trappings. So what happens is, if I know the truth, then all of a sudden I can think myself as being right. And I can think myself being good. And if I'm being a pretty good person and I'm behaving pretty well, pretty moral, one of the things that happens is I begin to look down on those who don't have the truth. I begin to look down on those who aren't obeying, who are not as good as, as I am. I start separating myself from them, right? they I separate the world in good guys and bad guys, right? Everybody either wears a white hat or a black hat. It's like an old Western, right? Except most of the time, me and my people have a white hat on and the rest of the world's coming in in a black hat, right? So I separate people, good guys and bad guys, and the good guys look down on the bad guys, which creates, again, pride in the heart and destroys relationship. Now, is that loving? Absolutely not. Destroying relationships, looking down on people, that's not loving. It's not creating loving people. Now, it's also, this also, this is the first step towards oppression. Oppressing anybody in a different class, a different race, a different gender, whatever it is, it's oppressive. I, I start looking down on them, that's the first step to oppression. And then lastly, if my worldview is know the truth, do good, be good, love others, and then God will love you. Here's the question that we have to ask ourselves. How good is good enough? Where's the line? And what most of us do, we don't ask ourselves that question, and we assume the line is right behind our heels. <laughs> How good is good enough? Just a little bit, you know, just right there. I'm sneaking in. Everybody behind me in the line? They deserve judgment. And what does it do? That leads to fear. 
It's a fear-based religion. Do good or God will judge you. Do good and God will get, or, or God will get you. It, it drives so much of religion. It leads to all kind of guilt-driven behavior. It leads to people who are exhausted because they feel like they're on a spiritual treadmill all the time, trying to do enough for God to love them. Is it loving? No. I think this religion fails John's clear and simple love test. It could never create loving people because they're always comparing each other and judging somebody else and looking down on others. You can't create loving people through fear and guilt. You can't force someone to love God or love others. It does, loving people doesn't happen by applying pressure from the outside. Societal pressure, religious pressure, pressure from the church, pressure from the family. That's not how you create a loving person. To love means I've had an inner change, an inner disposition, an inner change of motivation in my heart. So in this, religion fails. Conservative religion fails. Moralism fails. Traditional religion commands people to love each other, but it isn't actually able to make them more loving. It commands, but it cannot create love. Okay, the second view we're going to test could be called secularism or religious pluralism, as I called it earlier. The basic premise of this view is that all religions are equally true. You have yours, you have mine, let's just get along. Okay, or sometimes in a kind of a militant view, kind of militant secularism can say all religions are bad, all religions are fake, all religions are phony, and we don't even need them anymore. Now here, first off, let me just answer this kind of rationally, logically. If we believe that all religions are equally good and equally right, let's just test that premise to see if we actually really believe that. Do you really believe that all religions are equally true and equally good? What about the young girls who are wedded to the gods in some Hindu countries and forced to be cult prostitutes? Is that equally good and equally true? What about the female genital mutilation that goes on in Malaysian Islamic practices? Ruining their uh, possibility of ever enjoying sexual union with their spouse. Is that equally good? What about blowing yourself up and killing innocent people? Is that equally good? Is that equally true? See, I think our rational intuitions tell us absolutely not. These things are wrong. These things are not good. They are not equally true. But here's the other thing. I think it just fails a rational test, but also if you get down into this religious pluralistic view that kind of says every, every, you have your God, I have my God, they all kind of, it's all going to work out in the end. When you dig down deeper into this view, you realize, here's what's interesting, that it suffers from the same problems as traditional religion. It too is divisive. See, in religious pluralism, it usually makes its division between the enlightened, the educated elite, and I'll say, I'll say pre predominantly, that is white men, okay? 
versus the uneducated or the unenlightened. It, it makes its division between the unenlightened or the enlightened and the unenlightened, the educated and the uneducated. It too can even be oppressive. This last week, we had a great example of that. And if you want to look it up, you can watch the whole thing unfold as Bernie Sanders was questioning Russell Vought and he's arguing and he's pressing, he's pressing Russell Vought because Russell Vought is a Christian who wrote um, a, le a letter to the editor in response to what was happening um, up in uh, Chicago at, the, at, at uh, oh my goodness, Wheaton, at Wheaton College, thank you very much. And he made a claim, a religious claim. He's a Christian, he made a religious claim that Christianity, because of Jesus Christ, is the only way to know God. And, and so therefore, Islam cannot be equally valid, cannot be true, because it doesn't go through Jesus Christ. And Bernie Sanders applied his religious pluralism to this man and said that's Islamophobic to say that. And this man was not saying, you, 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 I don't want any Muslims to be in the government, or I, I want to oppress as Islamic people, or I don't think they should have the same rights as we do. This man was making a religious claim. I believe that we serve different gods. I believe they say this is how you get to God. Christianity says this is how you get to God through Jesus Christ. I believe this is the only way. And Bernie Sanders was saying that's Islamophobic to him. He's saying we don't want people like this in our governments. What is that? That's ex making an exclusive claim. That's making, he's saying, I have the truth, right? And what he's ultimately saying is educated, white, elite people have the truth. And if you don't agree with us, we don't want you in our government. That's an exclusive claim. That's a judgmental claim. That's a failure of the love test. That's not being inclusive. That's not welcoming. That's saying, if you don't have my view, we don't want you here. Right? And we see this all the time in our society. So listen, here's what's interesting. Both traditional religion and religious pluralism and secularism fail to create loving people. They're both divisive. They both separate the good guys from the bad guys and they go to war with one another. They, and it's interesting. They, both, they, all, they all march with signs saying love, right? They, both sides march with signs saying love everybody, love everybody, except those guys, right? Because those guys are idiots or those guys are bigots or those guys are morally reprehensible or those guys are just wrong, right? So they still create this division and they don't really create a loving community, not a diverse loving community. So this is when we need to go back to our text this morning and look at the other test that we can use to see if a religion is really good and true and good from God, that can produce this loving community. And here, here, let me just tell you, this is the test. It's going to get really narrow. I'm just letting you know. But its narrowness is like crawling through a small mouth of a cave once you get inside, it's going to open up to something much larger, right? A larger cavern. Now, with the other views, specifically secularism and religious pluralism, it looked really big and inviting. All religions are equal. All religion, religions are good. It's a big opening. But once you get inside it, you realize how narrow it is. You realize that, no, 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 that's the only view they believe. And if you believe in one God and his son, Jesus Christ, then you're on the outs. Christianity, or this view, is 
different. It's a narrow cave. Once you get in it, then it opens up. It's a narrow entrance. Once you get inside, it opens up and you see that, wow, this is actually really in- inclusive. Okay. Let's look at it here. John, first John chapter four, verses two, by this, you know, the spirit of God, every spirit that confess confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. And every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. This is the spirit of the Antichrist. So this is a teaching that's against Jesus. Now here's the test. What does your religion say about Jesus? This is the second test. What does your religion say about Jesus? According to this text, it says that Jesus Christ came from God, right? It says he came in the flesh. So Jesus, what the Bible teaches about Jesus is that he is co-eternal with God. He's coexistence with God. He exists in one with God, God, the father, God, the son, God, the Holy spirit. Theologians use the term Trinity. They're triune. Okay, and then sometime in history, this eternal God, Jesus Christ, the son of God, stepped in or came into the flesh and put on the flesh, became man like one of us. That's a historical claim, right? You could test that claim. Was there this man, Jesus Christ? Did he actually put on flesh? Was there a human being by his name? Did he do these things? You can test these things. Historical you can find historical reasons, historical conclusions about these things. Now, listen, here's where we're about to get really unique, special, narrow. I, I want to, what does your religion, what does other religions teach about Jesus? Let's just apply this test quickly to the two examples that I've used before, okay? The traditional religious approach sees Jesus as a good example for us to follow. When I was a kid, we used to have a bracelet. It was WWJD. What would Jesus do? You know what? I'll tell you what. That was awful to wear during high school. Okay? That was an oppressive bracelet during high school. All right? I just, what would Jesus do? What would Jesus do? This is the idea of the moralist. Live your life like Jesus, live your life like that, and things will go well for you. How good is good enough when you're trying to live like Jesus? I'll tell you what, if your standard is Jesus, you're never going to measure up. You're going to be on a constant treadmill of religious exhaustion, right? WWJD, that is exhausting, right? What would you, I don't know, probably multiply loaves right now. Right? I can't do that. Amen. Right? It's exhausting. Right? The evil thoughts that come into my head, I don't know what Jesus would have done with them. Not what I'm doing with them. Right? Now, this leads to religious exhaustion. People don't know why their soul is so tired. They don't know why they never feel good enough. They don't know why they never measure up. Now, listen. Jesus, as my example, does not create love for God and love for others. It fails the love test too. Be like Jesus, that ain't going to help me love my neighbor, right? Be like Jesus, I ain't Jesus. 
I'm not Jesus. That can't create in me this softness of heart, this desire to know my neighbor, this desire to step across the cubicle and know the person next to me and really get to know them and really love them. Do it because Jesus did it. It doesn't work. That's kind of like a moral exemplar, right? I, I, I don't think I have the resources he does. I'm not him. I don't think I can do that. And when we try to live up to that, it just creates exhausted people. Now listen, here's the second one. The religious pluralist or the secularist approach says this about Jesus. Jesus was just another good man among all the good men throughout the world religions. But this cannot be true because Jesus claimed to be the son of God. He said, you want to know God? Look at me. You've seen me. You've seen God. He, Jesus claimed that he could forgive sin. Jesus claimed that he existed with God before he was born. A merely good teacher couldn't claim these things, right? C.S. Lewis has famously said that this guy would either be a liar, he'd be crazy, a lunatic, or he'd be Lord over all. He would be God himself. And history tells us, it proves to us that Jesus actually existed, He made claims to be the son of God. He was killed for these claims on a Roman cross by professional executioners. He was buried in a rich man's tomb named Joseph of Arimathea. And then after his death and burial, he was seen again by many people. Okay, that's what we know for a fact, historical fact. He was crucified. He lived. He was crucified. He was buried in a named tomb. There was Roman guards put in front of that tomb. And then days later, he was seen again by many different people in many different parts of the area. So what happened? Now, there's been a lot of people have tried to explain this. Well, maybe he didn't really die, right? You really understand Roman execution? You know, that's not even a possibility, right? Maybe it was all a, a, a hoax. Maybe his disciples made the whole thing up. If you understand his disciples and who they were, were like Saul of Tarsus, a complete adamant enemy of Christianity, converted, you know, the only way that's going to happen is if he sees a resurrected Jesus. His own siblings, the only way they get converted is if they see a resurrected Jesus. Therefore, many scholars believe the most logical explanation, the most rational explanation is that Jesus Christ of Nazareth rose from the dead. And let me just say this, if he did, then you have to listen to everything he says. Right? We don't really know what happens after death. Well, he does. He did it. He went there, wherever there is. He walked into the light. He came back. He's telling us about the light, right? His dad is the light, okay? He's been there. He's done it. We have to trust him. We have to listen to everything he says. Now, for someone to say, therefore, if that's true, for someone to say, Jesus is just like all the other good religious teachers, requires them to totally neglect everything he taught, totally neglect the reason, what he said was the reason for his death. This, therefore, think about it this, this. This, therefore, would be a total dismissal of the greatest act of love that has ever been performed on this earth. A total dismissal. Now, this is what I want. I want you to go to 1 John 4. 
We're going to read seven again, verse seven. We're going to continue on. Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God, and whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God because God is love. Now look, here it is. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us. Okay, this concept of God as love, it's a big, like, eternal concept. It can be kind of ethereal. It's kind of out there. There's just, like, oozy, goozy love up somewhere. And I think that God loves everybody and all the people of the world. And there's just kind of this vague sense of this loving God up there. I think we all kind of have that, or many of us have that. But what John says here, no, 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 no. That love was made manifest among us. That means that weird concept that you have was that it actually put on flesh and it came down to show you what real love looks like. It came down to love you personally. Now that's different than this vague sense of this being up in heaven loves everybody to know that this God came down and loved us personally. That does something to you. If somebody's loving me personally, it demands a response from me. Now I can rebuke it. I can say, get out of here. I don't like you, whatever. But I, what is usually response? I love them. What's, what's the, I receive their love and then I love them back. It's, it demands some kind of response. Now keep looking. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us that God sent his only son into the world. So God loved you by sending his only son, okay? Keep reading. So that, now you should circle that so that, this is why he sent Jesus to love you. So that we might live through him. What? We might live through Jesus. We might live through the love of Christ. Now, let's, let's keep reading. In this is love. What does love look like? Here's what John tells us right here. This is love. Not that we have loved God, but that he loved us. Okay. Traditional religion, obey God and he will love you. Here, John says, that's not what this is. This is something different. This is not about your love for God. This is about his love for you. He came and pursued you. He came and loved you first. Whoa, 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 whoa. let's keep reading. Not that we have loved God, but that he loved us. And look, and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Now, I doubt on your anniversary card, you use the word propitiation, right? To talk about love, right? But what that word propitiation means is this. It's interesting. Propitiation means to turn away wrath, to absorb wrath. It's to jump in front of a bullet that's coming your way, right? Propitiation means to turn away wrath. So this is what he's saying. He's saying, and this is what the Bible teaches, all of us, we're born antagonistic towards God. He says we're born children of wrath, He says we're born enemies of God, that because of our sinfulness and our act of sinning, we deserve, I'm just going to use it like this, we deserve the wrath of God. We deserve to be judged and punished 
for our sins because we've rebelled from him. We've committed cosmic treason from the God who loves us. Now listen, this wrath of God is toward sinners and we are sinners. And yet propitiation means someone got in the middle of that wrath, absorbed the wrath, and then turns God's disposition towards us to pleasure. So God is angry at sin and angry at sinners. Jesus gets in, takes all the punishment we, that we deserve, and now the Father adopts us as children, loves us as a father, and his disposition towards us has been changed because Jesus took the wrath. He is our propitiation. So he's not looking at us as an angry judge anymore, though we deserve him to. He's looking at us like a loving father who knows our frame and wants to scoop us up and love us and pull, him, pull us to his chest. Thinking about this, who are we? Sinners, rebels, enemies of God. And this is who he chooses to adopt. This is who he chooses to love. Now listen, this is called the gospel. The gospel means good news. When God loved us when we didn't deserve it and he changes us from the inside out by loving us, it means we don't have to behave to get God's approval. We don't have to earn our way into it. Now I want to think I want you want you to think about it compared to secularism, religious pluralism and and religion. I want you to kind of compare it. See, this is what Christianity says. This is what the gospel says. But think about it. God loved me while I was his enemy. So I love my enemies. The gospel, Christianity, think about this. What is the center of Christianity? God, the God-man, Jesus, dying for his enemies and on the cross saying, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. See, the gospel is the only thing on planet earth that actually can create loving people. It can turn enemies of God into lovers of God and lovers of mankind. Now, why? Well, who are we? See, in religion, we're the good guys. They're the bad guys. In secularism, we're the good guys. The uneducated masses, they're the bad guys. In the, in God, in the gospel, who are we? Well, first off, we're enemies. We're the bad guys. We look up, we got the black hat on. We didn't sign up for this role. You're born with it. We're the un unenlightened. We're darkened by sin. We re and listen, you know what that does to us? It humbles us. It gives us the ability to recognize that there are people with different religious views that could be and often are better people than we are. My Muslim neighbor might be a better person than me. Absolutely. I can recognize that. Might be more educated might understand the world better, might be kinder, might be more generous. I am a sinner, we are sinners. But then who, who is Jesus? Think about this. He's not a good teacher. He's not just a good teacher. He's the only good guy. He's the only one who wore the white hat He's the only enlightened one. He's the only one who actually can see all things from all different perspectives. He's the only one that's been to heaven and back. He's the only one who knows all things. And what did he do? 
He came from God as the son of God, born to Mary as a man. He lived a perfect life. And he says he died a substitutionary death in our place for our sins so that he could go to the right hand of God, resurrect to go to the right hand of God, send the Holy Spirit to change enemies into sons and daughters. That's what he does. This is propitiation. And you know what? This is, I couldn't get, I could not get this out of my mind this week. I can't get it out of my heart right now. I'm going to turn back over. Look at chapter four, verse one. How does John start this, this chapter? He says this, beloved. Beloved. And then look again, he says it again in verse seven. Beloved. I don't use that word. I need to start using that word more often. (laughs) Beloved. This is what he says. This is what beloved means. A beloved, your beloved is a person who is dearly loved. A person who is cherished, who is treated with partiality. Right? When my wife asks me how much you love me, I don't go, I love you just like I love all the women in the world, babe. Psh, right? <laughs> I love you with partiality. I love you the best. I love you the most. You are my beloved, right? You're the one that I chose. It's a special kind of love. Now listen to this. This is the brilliance of the gospel. We were enemies and now through Christ, we're the beloved We're the beloved, not based on my performance, not based on how much I've read the Bible, how much I prayed this week, how many good, how many, you know, people I served throughout the community, not based on my education, not based on my schooling. I'm beloved based on Jesus and his work for me. Not that we have loved God, but that he has loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation of our sins. Now listen, this is what's just brilliant. Only the gospel can create what it commands. You read the Bible and it says love, love others. It says love God. That's an impossible moral standard no one can live up to unless God has loved us first. In such a way that when we come to see what he's done for us, it melts our hearts of stone and it turns them up to worship him. See, look, look at verse 11 and 12. What does that mean? Look at chapter four, verses 11 and 12. Beloved, oh, there he says it again, three times. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. What he's saying, if you know how much God's loved you, if you know what he's done for you, only that thinking about what Christ has done for you and how he's loved you so much that he put on flesh and lived and died for you and he was resurrected to the right hand of God for you and he fills you with the spirit, only thinking about the gospel will really motivate you to love others. That's it. It it creates what it commands. Keep going. No one has ever seen God. If we love one another, God abides in us and his love is perfected in us. What he's saying is this, no one's ever seen God, but they can get a real good idea of who he is by how well you're loving one another. See, what does the gospel create? What does believing this create? Listen to me. It creates 
This is the narrow, you, you crawl through the cave, Jesus Christ, he's the only way. You crawl through, it opens up really wide. It's a radically inclusive, loving community. It's an agape community. So that we live through him now. We love one another as he has loved us. Doesn't matter what race you are. Doesn't matter what socioeconomic bracket you've come from. It doesn't matter your political views. We love you. Even if you are our enemies, we love you because we were the enemies of God and God loved us. And so the same love we receive, we give out. Only the gospel creates this kind of community. Now, let me ask you this. Put our first test to it. Is this loving? Absolutely. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. It creates what it commands. Right? Traditional religion, love God, love others, prove it. Secularists, love all the inclusive people, love all the enlightened people. Right? Serve our, serve our you know, society in some way. Save the planet in some way. Prove it. Only in the gospel can it actually create loving people. You have been loved. Now you can love. Receiving the love of God into us changes us from the inside out and then propels us out to love others. Listen to this quote from a hymn by John Newton. Our pleasure and our duty, though opposite before, since we have seen his beauty, are joined to part no more. What he's saying? He's saying, when I see the beauty of God, when I realize how much I've been loved by God, the command to love him is easy. When I understand how loved I am, the command to love him is easy, and the command to love, him as my, na- love my neighbor as myself is as well. When my eyes are on the gospel. Every other religion says this. Here's the truth. Obey it and you'll be accepted. This always creates pride in the heart of those who think they're obeying, which leads them to separate from those who are not obeying it. Therefore, every other religion creates division between people. But Christianity says, Jesus is the truth. And Jesus is the only one who has ever obeyed obeyed enough to be accepted by God. Therefore, everyone else on earth is an outsider. Listen, if you put your faith in traditional religion, you'll feel superior to those who don't obey like you do or believe like you do. If you put your faith in secularism or religious pluralism, you'll feel superior to those who don't believe like you do. But if you put your faith in Jesus Christ, you will realize that you are superior to no one. You will be humbled to the dust knowing that there are a lot of people in this world who are moralistically and intellectually superior to you, and yet your salvation was wholly accomplished for you by Jesus Christ. You didn't earn it at all. They say the ground at the cross is level. You only step into the, you only enter into Christianity one way, and that's by realizing you are an enemy, you are an outsider, you're a sinner, and you were loved by a God before you changed, before you pulled yourself up by your bootstraps, before you got better and fixed your life, you were loved before all that. Only the gospel has this power. Only the gospel can really create humble, inclusive people 
And it does this through the exclusive claim that Jesus is the only son of God and the only way a person can know God. As we come to the Lord's table this morning, we're reminded of this fact. Please hear me. We are a diverse church. We are, we are diverse socially. We are diverse economically. Uh, we are young and old. We're one church though. Now listen, I doubt there's any other time in your week where you come together and you eat with this diverse of a people. The world of social media has created these silos where everybody that we hang around with shares our views on many things. We're more similar. We hang out with people who are like us. We have these kind of sound, these kind of rooms, these echo chambers that everybody thinks like we do and believes like we do. But this morning, we come together in as one body to eat one meal as a very diverse group. But we're eating one meal as one body. We're reminded, see, this is what the gospel does. It creates a crazy community, right? All kind of educated, uneducated, coming from different countries, coming from different backgrounds. We live in different neighborhoods. We might not ever sit around each other's table, but this morning we come to the table of the Lord and we're reminded that he is building his church and he is bringing people together from all walks of life and it's very inclusive. And why? Because in his body, he says in Ephesians that he's divided or he's destroyed all the divided dividing walls of hostility. All the things that we want to use to separate us, our education, our income, our race, we want to separate ourselves from others, our politics, we want to separate ourselves. Jesus, boom, he's destroyed it all through the cross. And we get to come in together as a family and eat and be reminded of this inclusive community of which this is just a drop in the bucket compared to what heaven's going to be like. Jesus, on the night that you were betrayed, you took the bread and you broke it and you said, this is my body broken for you. I'm reminded that you came to earth. You put on a body. You felt temptation. You felt betrayal. You felt the pain that our sin caused. You felt the distance from the Father as he turned his face away and you took on sin and took it to the cross to be our propitiation. Your body was such a key piece to that. And you took the cup and you said, this is the cup of my blood. This is the cup of the new covenant that no longer would we be justified by our works or justified by our religious observances we would be justified by your life, death, and resurrection. <clears throat> As we come this morning, I pray that we would eat this in the only acceptable way to eat it, and that is by faith. We would be reminded that we are sinners, we are enemies, we are children of wrath who have been beloved. We are the beloved because of the work of Jesus. May that capture our hearts, may that capture our minds, may that capture our wills this morning. In Jesus' powerful name I pray, amen.